Amen. Good morning. We're so glad you're with us here at South City Church. My name is Drew Klein. I'm one of the pastors. And man, what a joy to see you here. Thanks for being with us. Uh, We could just about go ahead and call it. I mean, that's a pretty good day of worship right there, right? Um, Thank you, guys. Thank you, team. Man, great job. However, let's stay just a little longer and continue to look into this series that we've been in called Acts, the story of the church. I love the book of Acts. Uh, we've been in it for four summers. We're going into this, this summer a little early this, this uh, time around to finish up the book of Acts this summer. Uh, if you were with us last week, you know that we are, we're in chapter 23, and Paul, we're seeing this amazing drama, this amazing story play out with Paul. He's been held captive. He was in the temple. Some Jews recognized him, and they, they, they grabbed him. And they wanted to kill him. They thought maybe he'd brought a Gentile into the temple, which is against the law, and so they were going to kill him. And the Roman uh, guard there at the Antonio Fortress at the temple sees what's going on. They rush down there. They save Paul. The, the tribune, the Roman tribune, thinks that maybe he's a, an Egyptian um, revolutionary, but Paul begins to speak in Greek, and he goes, oh, you're not the Egyptian. And so as there's just confusion. The tribune really wants to know who Paul is. Why do these people want to kill you? What have you done? Right? What's, what's going on? And so last week we saw that he really wanted to find out what Paul had done. He wanted answers. And so he was going to flog Paul. You remember that's the same thing that happened to Jesus before his death. He was flogged. Another word is scourged, whipped with this thing called a, nat, a cat of nine tails that literally left many men dead after this scourging. They were going to scourge Paul, and Paul's leaned over, stretched out, ready to be whipped. And he says, do you do this to Roman citizens? And they go, oh, everybody begins to back up. Wait, wait, wait. Because <laughs> this is against the law if we move forward with what, what we're about to do with this man. And so we saw last week that Paul uses his identity as a Roman citizen to live another day, to take the gospel of Jesus another day, to be on mission for another day, right? And then the, the, the uh, tribune still wants to know what's going on. Who, who is this guy? So if I can't flog him, I sure haven't let him go. I tell you what I'll do, I'll take him to the Jews, I'll set him before the Sanhedrin. And as the Jews, because they want to kill him, maybe I'll learn something more about this man in front of the Sanhedrin. Paul uses his identity as a Jew, and he says, hey, I'm just here to talk, talk to you about the, the hope we have in the resurrection. Ding, 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 ding. It was like this massive key word that the, that the Sadducees didn't want to hear. And a huge fight erupts between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It was, it was incredible. And the Romans, again, have to swoop in and rescue Paul. But Paul was using his identity as a Jew to know the right words to say, to take the gospel another day, right? And so we see the Lord providing these, these opportunities to just move the gospel forward. And then lastly, in the text last week, we saw Paul's alone, standing in a prison cell, probably at the Antonio Fortress. And all of a sudden, Jesus just shows up next to him, standing next to him. And he says two words, take courage. I love it. I love that story. I love the fact that Paul, is just, his, his heart is on the mission that God has given him. But you know, you get tired sometimes. Even if you're on mission, even if you're in ministry, even if you're not and God has given you a specific thing to do uh, to take the gospel forward, because we're all called to do that, we get weary. And sometimes we just need an encouraging word. And Jesus provided that for Paul. Take courage and be my witness just as you've been here 
be my witness all the way to Rome. So now Paul's encouraged because he knows, at least I'm going to make it to Rome. Jesus stands next to me, he's with me, and I'm going to make it to Rome, right? And so that kind of brings us up to where we are now. When it comes to the mission of Jesus, we are never alone. Before we get to our Acts passage, I want to remind you of a couple of things in the Great Commission. Look with me, if you will, in Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. The beginning of it and the end are the places I really want to focus on this. It says, and Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here's a couple of things I want you to notice. Look at the very beginning of this. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Can you wrap your mind around that? When we talk about the Great Commission, we always talk about the directions he gives us, right? Go, therefore, make disciples. We, we go there. Let's back up a little bit. <laughs> Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Can you imagine that kind of power? Can you even wrap your brain around it in any form or fashion? Because it's important for us to go and make disciples, we have to know that we have been, we have been given this assignment by the one who has all authority right? That's significant. All right, at the end of this section, we see Jesus say something very interesting. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Are any of the disciples here this morning? I can't. No? Was he talking to the disciples just then? Because they're not going to make it, right? They died. They don't make it to the end of the age. We may not even be the end of the age. It feels like maybe we're getting pretty close, but Maybe our children will, will usher in the end of the age. Maybe their children will usher in the end of the age. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Jesus will be with them and he is with us. This is so interesting to me that Jesus would say this to these disciples there, but not really to them. right? In other words, I'm with you, but I'm not only with you, I'm with all of my disciples until the end of the age. Two very significant things. He has authority. He's with us to the end of the age. Here's another thing. Colossians 1.17. I love Colossians 1. And in 1.17, uh, Paul tells the church at uh, Colossae, says, in him all things hold together. In who? Jesus. This is what that means. Right now, in Jesus, creator of the universe, he holds the sun just far enough so that we don't burn up on earth. He holds the sun at just the right angle so that we don't freeze to death. In your body, your molecular structure, your cellular structure, the, every piece of everything is held together by the power of Jesus. Can you wrap your mind around that? I can't. So not only has he been given, given authority, not only is he with us to the end of the age, right? Not, not only do we have that information, but he holds everything together. He holds it all together. This is important when we want to be a witness for Jesus. It's important to know this. Because sometimes we get fearful. Sometimes we get afraid of, of what God is calling us to as believers. See, Paul had literally uh, almost been torn to pieces, it said in the text, by the Jews. And they're still after him, we're going to see in our text today. Paul had literally almost been torn to pieces by the Romans, and yet Jesus stands next to him in a jail cell, and he says, go, take this message with you. And when we take the message of 
Jesus with us. How comforting to know. <laughs> he has all authority. Around every place we're going to go, around every person, right? That he's with us as we go. That he holds it all together. Those are important things to remember as we get into our text. Last thing I want to mention to you before we get into it is the title of our message, If God is for us. Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Would you say that with me? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's say it again. If God is for us, who can be against us? You tell me. <laughs> who would stand against our God? Right? Philippians tells us one day every knee shall bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. Who would stand against our God? Who would do such a thing? The Bible tells us you'd be a fool and you wouldn't last very long. Let's get into our text this morning as we talk about being a witness and him being with us. Acts 23, we're going to go through verses 12 through 15 first, but we're going to ultimately get all the way to, to verse 35. Acts 23, 12 says, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, uh, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Uh, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And when we are ready to kill him before he comes, uh, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. The plot just thickens, right, for Paul here. Let's pray and ask that the Lord will help us to understand everything he wants us to in this message today. Father, we love you. God, there's none who stand beside you. You are alone in your majesty. You are alone in your power. You stand alone in your glory. And we worship you, God. And we revel in the fact, Lord, that you love us, you have sent us, you are with us, you hold it all together. May we be reminded of these truths today, God, as we think about who we are going to be in you and how we're going to take this message of Jesus to a lost and dying world. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you'd help us to know all of the truth that is in this passage today, that I would decrease, oh God, and you would increase in this time that you'd be lifted up and we would know you more as a result of being with you and your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, four things I want to kind of cover this morning in our text. Number one, I want to look at the plot because the text opens right up with this conspiracy, this plot to ambush and kill Paul. Secondly, anytime you watch a good movie with a crazy plot line or any uh, drama like this, there's a lot of people involved. So I want to look at the players involved and what the significance is in all the players. Then I want us to see that regardless of the plot and regardless of the players, God has the ability to protect us. He protects Paul in an extravagant way, we're going to see in just a minute. And then at the end of the day, end of the time together, we're going to see uh, that there's a point to all this. What's the point that we want to make, all right? So the first thing we see is this plot. It's the chief priests and the elders that are being influenced by these 40 uh, conspirators, assassins, if you will. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I can't help but think about the mafia. I mean, this is a mob of guys that are telling the leadership of Israel what to do. You notice that? They literally go, okay, this is what you're going to do. You're going to tell the Roman tribune to bring Paul down, and you're going to, when you have a meeting, and then we're going to ambush him. You begin to wonder, really, where is the power here? 
doesn't seem to be in the leadership uh, of the Sanhedrin. So these 40 men have taken an oath. Well, what's an oath? It's more than just a vow or a promise that I make personally. Some of you today may feel the leading of the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, I want to I want to promise to do something for you. An oath is different than that kind of a promise. An oath is something you do before a Uh, a council, before you do a certain body of people, an institutional authority. I take this oath. It's more official in that way. So you stand before people normally that you were submitted to and you say, I'm taking this oath and I want to promise to do this. And their oath is, we're going to kill Paul before we eat or drink anything else. That means this is going to be a pretty immediate promise to to be taken through with, right? This needs to happen quickly. People like to eat and drink things pretty quickly. Some of you are already thinking about what you're going to eat and drink just after this message, right? So this oath needs to happen quickly. And so this, these folks are saying, make, make, let's go ahead and bring him down because we have a plan and we're going to ambush him and we're going to kill him. What's crazy about this to me is these are the religious authorities. These are the people that are supposed to be closest to God. They're supposed to know uh, the word of God, the law of God. And yet they, they conspire with these 40 men to murder Paul. Isn't that interesting to you? Like these are supposed to be the spiritual people. And here they're making a conspiracy to murder. I want you to notice something that's pretty interesting. As they conspire to, to kill Paul, they do so with these leaders of the Jewish Sanhedrin. But probably not all of them. That's why the text says to the chief priest and to the elders. Remember last week when there was a fight and Paul said uh, something about the resurrection and the Sadducees and the Pharisees had a fight. Well, the Pharisees kind of said to, uh, to the Sadducees, Paul may be right. Maybe Paul has things. They begin to defend Paul. And so in some ways, it's, the Sadducees may feel like, hey, they're on his side. And so in this text, we see that they take this conspiracy to only a portion of the council, just to the chief priest, just to the elders. So they're, they're dividing the, the Sanhedrin to see if they can get this conspiracy to happen. So they devise this murderous plot, but that's not what they should have done. They should have rejected it, right? As spiritual leaders, shouldn't they have gone, whoa, are you crazy? That's against the law. We don't do that. We don't dishonor God that way, right? That's, that's what spiritual people ought to do. It's what religious men should, should do, and that's not what they do. Instead of rejecting, they accept it. It's crazy to me. The original uh, problem against Paul, the original thing they were charging him with was bringing this Gentile into the temple. But that is long gone. You never hear that complaint anymore. Just because he believes in Messiah, now they want him dead. I was thinking about this and thinking about the fact that uh, surely these men would have known the word. Surely these men, these experts of the law, would have known right and wrong about murder, maybe, about a plot, maybe, about lying, maybe, about ambush. I mean, all these things, right? Look at Proverbs twenty nine twenty four. It says, he who is a partner with a, uh, with a thief hates his own life. He hears the oath but tells nothing. They've heard this oath and they keep their mouths shut. This is not a good thing. This is, this is now, they're now conspiracy to murder. This one's even, even worse. Look at this one, Proverbs 6, verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates. They would have been familiar with this verse, by the way, okay? Six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. 
haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Do, do any of those sound like the plot we're looking at today? I mean, not one or two of them, all seven, right? They, they didn't just make one little mistake here. They're going all in, all seven, haughty eyes. They, they think they're better than Paul. They think they're closer to God's law than, than Paul. Uh, a lying tongue, clearly they're doing that. Hands that shed innocent blood, yes. A heart that deceives a wicked plan, yes. Feet that run to evil, yes. Our oath is to do this before we eat or drink, right? A false witness who breathes out lies, yes. And one who sows discord among the brothers. They are committing every one of these sins. And they don't go, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this. They just say, okay, let's kill him. Isn't that amazing how sometimes religious people or more focused on how they're perceived in religion than what's going on in their hearts. Right? Sometimes we just want to, we're just worried about how people see us. Uh, but when it comes to our heart, when it comes to how we live, when it comes to the things that we get ourselves into, the things that we say, think, operate, spend, the things that we associate ourselves with, sometimes are completely against God. And yet we run to them. We're a part of them. Why? Right? We need to be a people who are not worried about the external as much as we are the internal of our lives. So who are the players in this story? We've got, we've got the plot. The players are, are these. There's these 40 plus men who've made this oath to not eat or drink until Paul was dead. We see uh, the chief priests and the elders, probably not the Pharisees included in this. And uh, because they've defended Paul, and, and so they, they've kind of excluded them in this, some of this plot, I want you to hear about a really unique character in our story. Look in, in the word, Acts 23, verse 16. It says, now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man uh, to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath to neither eat or drink, till they have killed him, and now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. This is a really interesting little text right here because Paul has family in Jerusalem? Isn't that interesting? This is the only place in the New Testament that we know about or we hear about Paul's family whatsoever. He's got a sister, and she has a son in Jerusalem. Haven't heard of it up till now, we won't hear of it again. But how providential <laughs> that he has family and a nephew just hanging out where the guys who are going to do this ambush, he hears them with this plan, right? Just, just by happenstance? No. By providence. God, God here uses a little boy. He uses his nephew, Paul's nephew, 
we know he's probably a little boy because it says that the tribune takes him by hand away and says, now tell me what you have to say to me. He probably wouldn't do that with a teenager, right? So it's probably a little boy. And I just want to say this right now. I don't see many. Do we have any kids in here that are under 12? Couple? Okay. Some really, but if you're, if you're a child or even if you have a child, let me say this to parents as well. God uses this child to advance the gospel of Jesus. Sometimes we just think, oh, our kids aren't ready for it. I don't know that they can handle it. I don't, let's, just, let's just take it easy. Listen, God wants to use your children. He does. Don't just dismiss the fact that they just want to color. No, teach them the word of God. Teach them the mission of God so that they can be on it. Because God used this young man tremendously. Can you think of, of the consequences if this young man hadn't been a part of this, if, if this hadn't happened in this way? Paul doesn't go to Rome. He doesn't write those pastoral letters. He, the gospel doesn't move as quickly maybe to, to Rome. I'm, who knows what would have happened? But God uses this little boy in an incredible way. It's a huge role. He hears the plot. He tells Paul. Paul tells the centurion. The centurion tells the tribune. And then the tribune protects Paul. Look with me at our next character, the tribune. His name is Claudius Lysias. Acts 23, verse 23. We'll continue to read. It says, Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 horses with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and he was about to be killed. But then when <clears throat> I came upon them with the soldiers, and I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. So this is the third point that I want to make this morning, and that is this. When you are on mission for Jesus, when you are taking the gospel of Jesus and advancing that forward, he is with you, right? And he will protect you. He will care for you. He is protecting Paul in the most extravagant way. God literally uses a Roman army to advance the gospel of Jesus. Do you see that? Not a few guys, a bunch. And this is, by the way, you've heard me say this last, last week. Rome, in some form or fashion, rescues Paul again. This is like the fourth or fifth time that the Romans have rescued Paul's life or people that, he, that were with Paul. Ironically, these are the same people that murdered Jesus, right? Ironically, these are the same people in a few years that are going to behead Paul. But at this moment, they protect Paul. At this moment, God uses them. The greatest, look at this the greatest army in all the world to protect Paul and to advance the gospel of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? 
Do you know why? Because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's with us to the end of the age, right? He's made this promise to us. He loves us. He's with us. He protects us. So not just a few soldiers, 200 soldiers, 70 soldiers on horseback, 200 spearmen. I'm not sure what that is. I guess they got a big spear, right? And they're escorting Paul on a two-day journey. They take him to this little town called Antipatris, which is about a day's ride from Jerusalem, and then it's going to be another half-day or day ride from Antipatris to Caesarea. Paul even gets a horse himself. Here he's taking the gospel of Jesus by foot all over the known world, but now he's riding in style, like a king, if you will. It's just a phenomenal turn of events. Here he was at certain death from multiple enemies. And now in the middle of the night, he's guarded by 470 Roman soldiers and taken to Caesarea. Now, we get to this part of the text that's really interesting. It's this letter written by this, one of these characters, this tribune, Claudius Lysias. Now, we're not sure how we got the letter. How, how did Luke get this letter? It's pretty interesting, but somehow he gets a hold of this letter and is able to put it in uh, the book of Acts 4, or in this letter, to, to share with us what happens. And what's interesting about this letter is we not only learn this tribune's name, but we also learn he's pretty selective with his storytelling, right? He says, hey, I saved this man when I found out he was a Roman citizen. Is it, that's not how the story went, though, is it? Did you notice there's nothing in there about I was about to kill this man by flogging? Did you hear that in there? That wasn't in there. He grabs Paul to save him from the Jews and, and lays him out ready to, ready to murder him. And Paul goes, Roman citizen, right? So it's only then that this man goes, oh, wait a minute. He sort of makes himself the hero of the story, which many of us do all the time as well. But he's not. And so we see sort of that he's kind of patting himself on the back and positioning himself with his boss in a way uh, to Felix, the governor. Felix is the last of the players, of the characters that I want us to see this morning. He's the governor of the province of Judea. He at one time was a slave himself, and he's been made a freed man. He has his job as governor only because his brother Paulus is good friends with Emperor Claudius and Nero. So there's this aristocracy, right, in, in Rome, and friends and family, and they're like, we need somebody to be the governor down there in, you know, Judea. And Paulus is like, you should send my brother. He doesn't have a job right now, literally. Okay. So they send somebody who really doesn't have the experience, doesn't know what he's doing. He's actually a pretty brutal uh, ruler and governor, and he only, he only does this job for seven or eight years till he's pulled out because he did such a poor job. And in the last of our texts before we close this morning, I want you to see some of the things that he does. He, he wants to make sure that, that Paul is in his jurisdiction. Uh, Acts 23, 34, and 35 as we close. It says, on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, all right, I'll give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And then he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So a couple of things just to bring to your attention on this last couple of verses. He makes sure that Paul is in the right place. I don't want to have to mess with you if you're not in my jurisdiction. Okay, you're from Cilicia. Okay, I'll hear the, I'll hear the case when your accusers arrive. 
you know, the, the, the soldiers came in the middle of the night. But when, they, when the, those that are accusing you arrive, whenever they get here, then we'll start this case and I'll hear what their complaint is against you. So then he tells Paul, but you're going to be held under guard in a horrible place, Herod's palace. Right? Paul has, has come a little ways. I mean, here's, this is Paul. He's been stoned. He's been beaten with rods. He's been left for dead. He has been through it. And now he's been ushered in the middle of the night by 470 Roman soldiers, and he's going to get to lay his head down in Herod's palace. Yes, he's a prisoner, but this is sort of some luxury uh, situation for him in a way. So we've got the plot against Paul. We see the players in the plot. We see how God protects us uh, even in our most vulnerable state at times and in extravagant fashion, but what's the point? What does this story say to us, right? Paul was facing certain death. Many different enemies, no question he seemed hopeless. And we read this verse a minute ago, Romans 8, 31. But God is in control, right? If God is for us, who can be against us, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? So ever since, because Paul made known that he was a Roman citizen, he escaped flogging. Uh, he was rescued by the Jews yet again. He was protected and escorted by nearly 500 soldiers in the middle of the night, and now he's staying in Herod's palace. This is incredible. But what's the point for us? See, I want to remind us this morning that it's Jesus' mission. If you know him as your Savior, it's his mission for us to take that gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the age. That our lives are not just about coming and hearing somebody speak. Can I... Can I burst a little bubble here for you this morning? Your job as believers is not to just come hear me speak. It's not the difficulty of having to put clothes on and go to a place for an hour and a half. I know it's hard. I'm being facetious. That's not the job. It's part of it. Also part of it is to live your life submitted to other people who love Jesus and love you so that they can help you in the brokenness of life, so that they can challenge you when we're not wanting to be challenged, so that they can bring you back from disbelief and false doctrine. But a huge part of our job, friends, is to take who we are, and more importantly, who he is, to the world. That's our job. Are you doing your job? I couldn't help but think about the, the early church in Acts 4, and they're praying together. God, give us boldness. Give us boldness to take who Jesus is to the world around me. Do you pray that prayer? Or is it not even on your radar? See, regardless of our fear, like Paul, our, our vulnerability, the size of our enemies, I love this quote from Henry Martin that says, we are immortal until God's work for us to do is done. I love that. You, as a believer in Jesus, are immortal until God's work for you to do is done. I can't help, I've been thinking about Scott Williams. Last night, I woke up this morning, uh, in the middle of the night, I actually started praying for him. This morning, I'm praying for him. We've texted. My heart is with him. I wish I could be with him. And I just want to tell Scott, you are immortal <laughs> until you have finished the work that God has for you. And I'll tell you the same thing, right? God knows when we're going to die. 
He's got a plan for our lives. The Bible says it's appointed once for a man to die. Once. There's a day coming that I will die and that you will die. But until that point, are we on mission? Are we living in faith? Are we living in fear? Because God wants to take this life, the rest of my days, whether it's one or 2,000, I don't know, and, and make Jesus known. Nothing can harm us. Nothing can thwart his plans. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This is what Jesus is saying. Are you carnal or are you spiritual? To be carnal means you're only worried about this life. You're only worried about the very temporary nature of these 70, 80, 90 years that we have on this side of, of death. But to be spiritual is to know that we're going to live forever. To be spiritual is to know that God's given me this life not for me. It's not my story. It's not your story. It's God's story. And we get to use what he's given us, the giftings, the family, the education, the identity we have, all to support the identity we have in Jesus to make him known. We are not the main character. Shock. You play a supporting role. I play a supporting role of taking the gospel of Jesus to the world. Are you carnal or are you spiritual? Are you thinking about the things of heaven, the things of a life in Christ and making him known, or is your life wrapped up in your life? My prayer is that God would help us to move from being a people worried about the temporary to being a spiritual people. We're all going to die, but we don't all really live. Jesus says, I use this verse all the time, I just love it, John 10, 10. Thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come to bring you life and life more abundantly. Are you living out of that abundant life in Christ? Because, friends, can I tell you, there is not another one like it. There's not another one like it. There are moments, I sat there this morning, I sat with my wife having coffee in our home. We watched a movie the night before last, and it just made me so grateful for my children and the blessings. Of my, I, I, I'm so thankful for you. I'm so thankful for this moment that we have together. I, I, I can't tell you. When you follow Jesus, it is the best life you can imagine. He satisfies every part of your soul. But as long as you search for something else to satisfy, you won't be satisfied. He's the only one who satisfies Live out of that abundant life that he gives you. Don't let the enemy steal, kill, and destroy you, your faith. Maybe you're like the chief priest this morning or the elders, these 40 assassins who, they, they look extremely religious. They want, they want to be perceived a certain way, but their hearts are far from God. It's just about the rules. It's just about the, the position. Maybe it's about the tradition. Maybe some of those things resonate with you. None of those things take you closer to Jesus. We don't want to just be a religious people. We want to be a people who genuinely love and know our Savior, making him known, serving him. Some of you need to quit worrying about how religious or, or faithful you look and the exterior of your life and start doing some work on the interior of your life. Do you know Christ as your Savior? If you were to die, if God's appointed time for you was today, 
would you go to heaven? Or would you go to hell? It's a very real place. How are you using this life and this gift of grace, of salvation, for his glory? Because when he saves us, he changes us from the inside out. Right? He makes us not want the things of the world. He, he changes our desires. Philippians 2.13 says he gives us the desire to do what he wants us to do. He changes it. I'm not satisfied with the sinful things I did anymore. I don't want that. I want Jesus. This life is not my own. I'm crucified with Christ. Oh, I'm thankful that God can use anybody in this room today. Talked about that last week. He can even use a child. John Stott says, Paul was completely vulnerable between civil and religious authorities, between hostile and friendly, between Jerusalem and Rome, and look at the the escape that God provided Paul. Look at what he did. Look at what God did for Paul. It just, it makes me brave. Do you feel that? If God is for me, who can be against me? My wife this past year <laughs> has prayed this prayer over our home for over a year. She just keeps, she even said it just a day or two ago, and I didn't say anything that I was going to mention it this morning, but she, she says this all the time. Isaiah 54, 17 says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. She's just been praying this prayer over our family. No weapon formed against us will prosper, right? Just this faith to know, God, everything that's gonna happen in my life, you have to approve. It doesn't mean we don't walk through difficult things. It doesn't mean we have to put up with enemies sometimes. It doesn't mean that we don't face difficulty. But every difficulty is approved of God to make you more like Jesus. Every single one. Sometimes God allows us to deal with our enemies. Though they're not flesh and blood, sometimes it seems like it. I want to just encourage you with this one last verse before we close. Ephesians 6, 11 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Friends, the enemy is against you. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. That's not figurative. That's literal. He wants to kill your life, your heart, your marriage, your business. That's his plan for you. And he's scheming even as we speak against us. And Paul says this is what we do. We put on the whole armor of God. If you go to, I'm not gonna spell this out for us. Go to Ephesians 6 and learn what that means. Look through all the different things as Paul's looking at a Roman soldier and he, he, he describes the things that we have. He talks about the fact that we, at the very center of who we are, we trust Jesus because he's true. He's true. We cover our lives with his truth, his righteousness. We have his peace that can only come from his gospel. We have faith. We have faith in the fact that he saved us through Jesus And our only offensive weapon is the word of God. Do you know it? Do you use it? Is it a part of your life? Are you carnal? Are you spiritual? Who are you right now? And do you understand your role in this story? It's not, God, this is my plan. I sure hope you bless it. That's not the right prayer. 
It's God, I'm yours, whatever you want to do. Whatever you say, whatever I walk through, whatever you want me to face, wherever you want me to go, here's a blank check of my life. It's signed, you place on the memo what's going to happen with my life. I say yes. So whether he's called you to be a witness to your next door neighbor, and that can be really scary. (laughs) Or whether God, even in this moment right now, in this room, he's calling you to go to the most dangerous of countries in the world, the most dangerous of mission fields. Can I just tell you, you're immortal (laughs) until God is finished with you. He's for us. He's with us. Who can stand against us? Don't be afraid to walk into the plan of God for your life. Don't be afraid to to stand up tall in his strength and in his hope with his mission. And we remember as I close, he has all authority in heaven and earth. We try to wrap our brain around that, that he could cause our enemy to be our protector. He's with us. Until the very end of the age, he holds every molecule together. He holds it all together. He can do anything. And if he's for us, who in the world would be against us? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment? Can I just ask you this question? If you're here this morning and you've never said, God, I want to be yours. I want to surrender my life to you. I don't know you. Would you save me? Would you change my heart? Would you help me to live a life for you? I'd just like to pray for you. If you're here and that's you, would you just slip up your hand and say, hey, that's me. Pray for me. I need your prayer. Amen. Praise God. Maybe you're here and you're going, you know what? I identify with those Jewish leaders. (laughs) Because I tell everybody around me I'm a Christian. The people at work, they they know I'm a Christian. My closest friends, they know I I go to church. But I've been doing things in my life that don't honor Jesus. It's a slippery slope. And these supposed leaders of Jerusalem, of Israel, conspired against Paul to murder him. This old saying that is so true, and I love it, it says, sin will take you further than you wanted to go. It'll make you pay more than you wanted to pay. It'll destroy your life. Some of you may need to come down to this altar and say, God, I need to start over. I need some people who will speak truth into my life. I need to submit myself to accountability. I need to be about you and your mission. What do you want to do in my life to advance your kingdom? Take my mind off of myself, off of my dreams, off of me, and put them on you and what you want to do. So we're just going to sing for a little bit if you need to spend some time with the Lord doing that right now. I want to pray for you. Father, thank you for this time. God, would you move in this place? Even as we sing this song of worship to you, may you be lifted up by more than our voices. May our lives be obedient and representative of who we are in you. Take us deeper, Jesus, we pray in your precious name. Amen.